You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hello folks, welcome to the show and welcome to the new season. We've had some great guests already, oh, yes. haven't we Mikey? Oh, it's been a hoot. This time around we've had Ian Rogerson, Max Markson and in episode 6 it was the turn of sex historian Esme Louise James. Uh, I think you'll kick us off Mikey. Yes, well she was talking about Julie Dubonnet, yes. the, the, the soprano and also too incredible sword fighter mm. who took part in her fair share of duels. Which got me thinking about, well, something that's gone down in history, Paul, is the Emancipated Duel. Right. It's in August 1892, and the two combatants were women, which is very unusual. Mm. It was Princess Pauline von Metternich. Princess. Princess and Countess Anastasia Klimenzig. Very posh. Yes, indeed. They were both in the top strata of Viennese high society, mm. and they did not like each other. Right. Now, in the months leading up to the duel... So they're having a real duel. Yes. Oh, yeah, but full on. Oh, even more. Wait till I get to it. In the months leading to the duel, Princess Pauline was made the honorary president of the Vienna Musical and Theatrical Exhibition, which was a high-status social position. Mm. Great prestige. Now, Countess Anastasia also had an official position at the same exhibition, and ah, that's where the arguments the started. Yeah, yes, indeed. She was president of the Ladies' Committee of the exhibition. <laughs> yes. And well, what happens is, and this is true, it started as an argument over flower arrangements. Ooh. Yes, apparently the uh, the countess wasn't happy with some flower arrangements the princess had signed off on. Yes. Well, this escalated until suddenly it resulted in a duel. Pistols at all? No, no, the, no, no. They decided to use rapiers. Right. And and the idea was to it wasn't going to be a battle to the death. Mm. Whoever drew first blood, ah. which was not uncommon for a duel, whoever drew first blood would be deemed the winner. Mm. But here's the thing: all the seconds were women as well. Right. And so was the referee, a Baroness Lubinska. Mm. Now the Baroness was also a medical doctor, so she decided that seeing as they weren't fighting to the death. Mm. The biggest threat they had was actually being wounded and with their less than clean 19th century clothes on them, mm. they might get infected. So it was decided that the two women would actually strip to the waist to fight the duel. Strip to Stripped the waist. Wa- Countess and a princess. Yes, yeah, stripped to the waist. So all the male servants were told to remove themselves to a safe distance. And I hope covered their eyes. They actually told to turn their backs. <laughs> and so the duel goes on. It goes three rounds. Now, Princess Pauline was declared the winner. Mm. They both wounded each other. Right. It was decided that the wound she inflicted on the Countess's arm was considerably more significant. Ooh. It also sparked, this is not unsurprising, a bit of a cottage industry. <laughs> Postcards of recreations of the jewel suddenly became gentlemen's collectibles. Oh dear. Look, I've just got to say, the reaction to the new season has been wonderful. And yes. we're, we're really enjoying the questions you've been sending in. That's right. And we got one from that episode because, of course, um, Esme's howler was Diogenes the Cynic. Yes. And quite a few people have asked, you know, why were they called 
cynics, you know, where do they get their name from? Mm. And one person, very smart, uh, they asked, has it got anything to do with dogs? Because, of course, you know, the Greek word for dog, kinas, is where the cynic, kinic, um, came from oh, really? originally. Yes, but I suppose the real question is why they chose it, you know, not what they chose. And it was actually definitely a deliberate choice. And these, actually, Mikey, are the reasons which apparently the cynics themselves gave at the time. The first one was because the cynics liked to celebrate the fact that they were very indifferent, you know, just like dogs. They were quite happy to eat or make love in public. They would, oh, right, yeah, they'd yeah. go barefoot. They'd sleep in terms, as we yes, talked yes, 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 about. Yes, yes, they'd even that. sleep in the, in the street at the crossroads, you know, just like a dog. Yeah. Secondly, we've got the dog being a sort of shameless animal. And the idea behind the cynics was a sort of <laughs> cult of shamelessness. You know, we were talking about, mm. the, unfortunately, the, the masturbation of, yes, <laughs> yes, of yes. Diogenes. But the idea was that they weren't beneath modesty. They actually thought themselves to be superior ah. to modesty. They didn't even have to give it the time of day. <laughs> then, then third, we've got the dog being a good guard. You know, the cynics, they considered themselves the guards of the tenets of their philosophy. And finally, the reason why they chose to name themselves after the dog is that they thought the dog was the most discriminating animal, you know, which could distinguish between friends and enemies. Having said that, Diogenes himself actually said, other dogs bite their enemies. I bite my friends to save them, which just about sums up the way that Diogenes just liked to be that little bit different. Then with that episode with my old mate Ian Rogerson, yes. when we talked about uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, yes. and we explained how he and FDR were vaguely related. Of course, Va- very much related, yeah. yes. Which got me thinking about presidents who were related to each other. Mm. Now, you've got the obvious ones. You've got John Quincy Adams, the sixth president. Mm. Now, he was the son of John Adams, the second yes. president. I love the story that when uh, John Adams was told his son had been made president, how he felt, he said, no man who ever held the office of president would congratulate a friend on obtaining it. <laughs> uh, but, of course, there, there were the two Bushes, you know, yep. you know, you know H and W, another sure. father and son. But here's the thing, mate. The Bush family can trace their American heritage to Samuel Hinckley and Sarah Sewell. Now, they married in Kent in England, 1617, mm-hmm. and they migrated to America, in fact, to New England, during the great Puritan migration that happens between mm-hmm. 1621. Pilgrim they, Fathers, yep. Yeah. Yep. And they went on to have 16 children. So not really that Puritan, to be honest. <laughs> so that's a lot of offspring. In fact, so many offspring that another president can trace his lineage back to this couple. Same couple. Yeah, the same couple. In fact, this means that George W. Bush and the man who replaced him, Barack Obama, no are way. A- they're actually distant cousins. But mind you, what? Obama is also distantly related to both LBJ and Harry Truman. Wow. Now, the ninth president, William Henry Harrison, the shortest serving president of all time, just yes. one month, was the grandfather of Benjamin Harrison, the 23rd president. Okay. But here's, a, here's an odd one. Confederate military supremo Robert E. Lee mm. was also Washington's, George Washington's step-great-grandson by what? marriage. Yeah, yes. Remember, Martha Washington had been married to a guy called Daniel Park Custis. Yes, we died. talked about that, yes. Yeah, so, so George took care and raised the two Custis kiddies, Eleanor and George. Mm. And it's through this family line that eventually... Robert E. Lee inherits Arlington House, wow. which after the Civil War becomes that most hallowed ground, Arlington National Cemetery. The cemetery, of course. But at the centre of this, we do have FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, here's the thing. He might be related to Robert E. Lee as well. Wow. As well as Douglas MacArthur mm-hmm. and possibly Churchill. In fact, FDR, either through blood or marriage, was definitely related to 11 other heads of state. 
Ian's howler, of course, in that episode was De Groot yes. yeah, and, and the, the fascists. And, of course, Matt Preston, yeah, he also, another of our guests, has been talking about fascists in America. So, <laughs> yeah. not surprisingly, a few listeners have been keen to stick the needle into me too, Mikey, yeah, because uh, they talked about America. We talk about fascists here in Australia. Ah, I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, the other country which yeah. often likes to brush their fascists under the carpet, if you like, is also, of course, the UK. So here you go. I'm going to try and set the record straight. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to go down the route of the, the TV dramas like The Crown and talk about yeah. Edward VIII. And I'm not going to enter into the hero howler debate over P.G. Woodhouse, you know, and his time that he spent oh, yeah. in Berlin. Because, yeah, to be honest, Mikey, the, the sad truth is a lot of the writers who I hold as literary heroes have actually turned out to be pretty much howlers yeah. off the page. Now, the guy, the howler I want to concentrate on today is Oswald Mosley, ah, of right, course. Mosley, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And because he sadly, you know, he lent the fascist movement in the UK, you know, the one he became the leader of, um, he lent it that completely undeserved cloak of respectability, uh, which for a time there you know, really was a, a danger. And when I say respectable cloak, Mikey, I, I really mean a full-blooded respectability, the establishment high society, because Oswald Mosley, you know, the leader of the fascists in England, he was actually the distant cousin of the old Queen Mother. You know, and he'd also married the daughter of Lord Curzon, yes. who'd been the Viceroy of India. We mentioned him in a few oh, shows. Yeah. And of course, he later went on to become the British Foreign Secretary after World War One. And then secondly, when Mosley, after he divorced from Lord Curzon's daughter, he then marries Diana Mitford, one That's of the right. famous Mitford, Mitford sisters. sisters. Yes. And here's something I didn't know before today, Mikey. Hitler was actually a guest at their wedding. Oh, really? But obviously, his, his political career, we really want to talk about. And I think it's worth pointing out that he had, for many years, been somewhat the rising star of British politics and of the establishment in the mainstream before he went over to the fascists. Because mostly he was a baronet, he was an MP, he even served as the Chancellor Duchy of Lanchester, you know, a sort of minister without portfolio, if you like, in the cabinet under Ramsay MacDonald's government in 1929 and 1930. You know, this guy, he's got lots of cash. He's also got lots of connections through his time at Winchester School and then, of course, at Sandhurst. So unlike Hitler, he wasn't like a, you know, a, a lone nutter. This guy was part of the establishment. Right in the middle. You know, Brits try and pretend England never succumbed to the allure of the right. But the big hitters, the big hitters of society, Society. They actually sympathised with him. You know, he wasn't a lone wolf, as perhaps many people now would like to think him. Mm. You know, none other than Keynes, the great economist, he actually praised on several occasions the early economic policies that Mosley put forward, like the Mosley Memorandum. In fact, we've got the Westminster Gazette, which is a very well-respected periodical at the time. It wrote that Mosley was, and they were, quote, the most polished literary speaker in the Commons, Words flow from him in graceful, epigrammatic phrases that have a sting in them for the government and the conservatives. To listen to him is an education in the English language, also in the art of delicate but deadly repartee. He has human sympathies, courage and brains. Yeah, so that gives you an idea, Mikey, of just how in he was with the powers that be. But fortunately, Mikey, this was a howler who was never going to be able to hide his true colours for that long. You know, as a politician, he'd already flip-flopped a few times. He'd been a Tory MP, then he'd become an independent, then he'd moved over to the Labour benches before he launches his British Union of Fascists. 
And of course, it was the BUF that ultimately led to his downfall, getting him put on the list of potential enemies of state and interred throughout World War II. But like I said, me and people in England, we need to own up to the fact that for a while there, there were a lot of Brits who not just tolerated him, not just tolerated his movement, but actively lent him support. Yes, there was clearly a man with a massive ego problem in there, Mm -hmm. but we shouldn't just sweep the rest of what he stood for under the carpet because, in fact, his Britain First rally at the Earl Court exhibition ended up being the largest indoor political rally in British history with the reported over 30,000 attendees. And that was on the 16th of July, 1939, just six weeks before the declaration of war on Germany. 30,000 people went to listen to Mosley and his fascist talk. You make a really good point, Paul, because it wasn't just Italy and Germany that had fascist movements. France, America and England and Australia all had to deal with their own fascist movements in the run-up to the Second World War. Then we had Matt Preston come in, you know, the, the living national treasure that is Matt Preston. Yes, good old Matt. And he was talking about the, the Chinese pirate queen. Mm. But Matt and I almost got sidelined on the way to the pirate queen because <laughs> we started talking food. Talking food, yeah. yes. And we're talking about exosauce, mm. which everyone thinks you know, must be centuries old. It was actually invented in the 80s. Yes. Which got me thinking about... Foods that aren't as old as you think they might be. All right. So let's start with exosauce. It was actually invented probably in the Spring Moon restaurant in the Peninsula Hotel in Hong Kong. Yeah, okay, I've been there. I've I've had one of the best meals of my life at the Spring Moon (laughs) restaurant. And it it got its name from exo brandy or cognac, which wasn't Uh. actually in the original sauce, but it was seen as like a a marker of the excessive 80s. So it was invented Mm. in the 80s. Let's start with some classic. Most people know about Carpaccio. Yeah, now, you would think Carpaccio centuries old. Now it was invented by the Venetian chef Giuseppe Cipriani at the famous Harry's Bar in 1963. Right, it's sort of loosely based on a Piedmont dish, but here's the thing: he actually invented it for a woman called Countess Nenni Macengio because her doctor instructed her to avoid eating cooked meat. Mm. It gets its name from the 15th century painter Vittorio Carpaccio. No. He was really popular at the time. There was an exhibition in Venice, and he was famous for the dark blood colour that was in his paintings. Actually, while we're talking about paintings and Harry's Bar, there's also the Bellini Cocktail, which was also invented in the same bar. Mm. Well, it gets its name from the 15th century painter Giovanni Bellini, because mm. he'd painted a saint in a toga of a fetching light pink colour. Now, think, you, know, you think of a, a Bellini with the, with the peach puree and the Prosecco, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a nice, like, pink colour. Yes. Here's another one. Pho. Yeah. You know, the great Vietnamese soup. Oh, yes, yummy. Now, you think it's been around for centuries. Well, look, there's a standard story that actually sort of appears in the late 19th century because French colonials wanted their one-pot beef and vegetable stew, a pot of pho, which morphed into pho. Yes. But then again, there's also another dish of soup and noodles that was brought in by Chinese immigrants around about the same time. Mm. It would seem that by the early 20th century, these two dishes had sort of met each other mm. and they were being sold on the street you know, by street vendors, mostly at dawn and at dusk. Mm. And by the 1930s, it developed into the dish that we would know today. Mm. But now I'm going back to Italy, mate, for some other not-so-classic classics. <laughs> Tiramisu. Yeah. Tiramisu gets invented in 1955. There's a mm. woman who owns a restaurant in Trevizzo called Alba Campiol. Now, here's the thing. She was pregnant. Mm. So she would start every day with some Zabaglione and an espresso. Ah. Not a bad start to the yeah, day. Yeah, okay, why and not? She then takes this and works with her chef, and by 1972, the dish we called tiramisu was launched onto the world. Now, carbonara. 
actually, after we did that episode with Matt, he and I went to the pub. And we were actually talking about carbonara. <laughs> yeah. And there are so many origin stories about carbonara. Mm. Now, there's probably, probably an old Italian dish, which is a little bit like carbonara, but it doesn't have the eggs in it. Right. Now, the eggs come from American troops at the end of World War II. No way. Yeah, a guy called Renato Giuliandi. He was cooking for the American staff. And so it's basically like you know, they want like a bacon and eggs pasta. I didn't realize... It's the end of World War II. So the first carbonaras were made with not real eggs. They were made with powdered eggs oh. from the rations. But here's my favourite. Ciabatta bread. Ciabatta sandwich. Love it. Could there be anything more sort of medieval than ciabatta bread? Invented in 1982. No way. By a rally driver and baker, a guy called Arnaldo Cavallari, and he was trying to make a baguette. <laughs> now, here's one that's going to be near and dear to your heart. Chicken tikka masala. Oh, yes. Buttered chicken. Was actually invented in the early 1970s by a guy called Ali Ashmat Alsum in his restaurant in sunny. Is it Birmingham, Leicester? No, mate, even wetter. It's Glasgow. <gasps> Let's finish off with everyone's I've had a bit too much to drink snack. Yes. Nachos. Okay. Invented in 1943. At least in Mexico, please. Well, yes, in the Mexican border town of uh, Piedras Negras by a guy called Ignacio Nacho. Mm. What happened was a couple of wives from Fort Duncan just over the border, Mm. the military base, they'd come to town to do a bit of shopping and have a day trip. When they get to his restaurant, the restaurant was closing and the kitchen was actually closed. Mm. So Nacho, the owner of the restaurant, he goes into the kitchen and he grabs whatever he can. So he cuts up some tortillas into triangles and he melts over some cheese and jalapeno peppers. Mm. And they loved it. So they said, what's the name of this dish? And he went... Nachos Especiali, <laughs> named it after himself. But here's the thing. It doesn't really take off to the 1970s right. when it starts becoming a snack at minor league baseball games. <sighs> and it was called Baseball Nachos. <laughs> and the reason why it becomes a snack there was, this is a horrible thing to say, it's America. So it's cheese in a squeezy bottle. <laughs> All right, well, that's the end of Mikey's Extra Helpings, but I've got one more from that episode with Matt Preston because, of course, he took us back to Qing Dynasty China when he was talking about his Chinese pirates. And we mentioned about how the Qing Dynasty themselves actually weren't a Chinese dynasty at all, but from the previously very separate state of Manchuria and how they'd actually invaded, seemingly walked through the Great Wall of China and opposed to get to Beijing. So, Not not surprisingly, Mike, we've had a few listeners write in to ask if perhaps the Great Wall of China shouldn't be called that great after all. You know, the Chinese love to celebrate it as their national treasure, their national hero, if you like. They, They celebrate it whenever they can. I'm going to assume you've actually walked on it, mate. Yes, I have. I walked on many parts of the Great Wall. And to give you an idea of just how much esteem it's held in, Mikey, you know, even that great Chairman Mao quote, isn't it? That we are not real heroes if we don't make it to the Great Wall. So maybe I'm a real hero oh, well, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there too. But a few of the listeners have asked, you know, if it's not all that it's cracked up to be, perhaps we should be labelling it a howler instead. So, you know, I'm going to give this iconic edifice a full debrief a full moment in the sun if you like and i'm going to try and answer all those questions mm-hmm. once and for all because while i do think there are a lot of parts that the chinese try to gloss over when they tell you stories about the wall mm-hmm. at the same time 
the Great Wall you know, is up there with the pyramids, yeah. Machu Picchu, Angkor Wat, as one of the sort of bucket list sites we are, we've been lucky to be given from history. So first things first, mm-hmm. the Great Wall, of course, it was not actually one single continuous wall at all, but a series of walls built at different times over various areas and ostensibly for a number of different purposes. So, for example, you've got walls way out west, mm. ending in the classic Jade Gate and the Southern Yang Gate, which were said to mark the border between civilization, as the Chinese saw it, and the barbarians of the steppes. Mm-hmm. But then at the other end, you've also got sections of walls stretching north into what is now modern-day Russia, and also northeast onto the Korean peninsula. What's more, while some sections, especially those in more remote areas, were little more than very basic walls, you know, ramparts stuck together with rammed earth. Later on, many of the more impressive parts, particularly those sections constructed by the Ming dynasty in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, they were more like sort of medieval superhighways. These are the sections closer to China's heartlands that you often see on all the postcards. And they encompass not just walls, Mikey, but beacon towers, garrison encampments, gates, watchtowers, and they're beautifully faced with stone and fired brick. And along the top was a stone, effectively stone road, wide enough for an army of troops to march along and also for horses to ride along. Because one of the most overlooked roles that the Great War played was that of a communications network. You see, stables were stationed at regular intervals along the wall, and horses were always kept ready. So if the government in Beijing or Xi'an, wherever it might be at the time, if they needed to send orders out to their generals in the field double quick, the wall acted like a sort of telegraph line along which the emperor's messengers would literally ride like the wind. So, you know, I do think it's important to realise that it was always meant to be more than just a defensive wall. And in fact, a bit like Hadrian's Wall that the Romans built up in Scotland, you know, in many ways, it was used to engage with the enemy, not just negatively in terms of attacks, but also positively. You you see, time and again, we've dug up evidence from these garrison camps that I'm talking about along the Great Wall, and they've obviously served as great marketplaces. So at times of peace, the wall was used as much as a meeting place for trade and barter as it was for defence or as a base for military attacks when they were going forward. In fact, in many ways, the Great Wall was the key to the Chinese getting in on the act of what was the emerging Silk Roads networks that we've talked about in all those other episodes. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yes, but to be fair, Mikey, its primary aim, of course, was always initially defensive. And it dates back over 2,000 years, actually before the Han Dynasty, even before the Qin Dynasty and the so-called founding emperor of China, Qing Shi Huang, who first unified the country as a whole. Even before then, sections of the wall had been built, and they were intended to act as a border, a territory marker, and to stop the northern invaders, particularly the Xiongnu tribes that we've talked about before, coming across from the steppes of Central Asia or down from what's now Mongolia. So in parts, Mikey, the Great Wall's thousands of years old, although, like I said, in those early days, it was more a series of lots of small walls blocking off strategic passes and valleys rather than one Great Wall. Nevertheless, even if now some stretches look like little more than sort of hardened sandcastles out in the desert, if you do add up 
all those minor sections plus the major sections that were built later on and all the other bits that were joined up to form the one continuous line, if you actually stick them all together, Mikey, you get over 50,000 kilometres of walls. <laughs> now, those outside Beijing, such as Badling, are the most famous, but I actually think my favourite bits are at either end. You know, in the east, where the wall meets the ocean at the town of Shanghai Guan and the spur of land known as Dragon Head. I think that's particularly beautiful. And in the West, you've got a few choices. You've got the Jade and the Yang Gates, like I mentioned before. They're just outside Dung Wang with these sort of very eerie garrison towers and beacon towers stretched out across the desert. But you've also got the great fortress garrison at Jiayuaguan, which marked the western end of the wall in the Ming time. So whichever one you pick, Mikey, it's well worth a couple of days trekking around and following its path as it snakes and up and down the mountains and blocks off those various passes, as I said. And it certainly is an incredible feat of engineering, even if, unfortunately, thousands of men forced labour actually ended up dying in its construction. In fact, there are some pretty gory tales on that, Mikey. The, yeah. the, the, the skulls and the skeletons of those forced labourers, they were actually often used to build up the foundations of the rammed earth ramparts as they were being built. Ugh. But there's one other thought that I want to leave uh, with you today, Mikey. Mm. And this really is an aspect of the war which the Chinese <laughs> are very quick to forget about these days and, in fact, would rather prefer the outside world not to recognise at all. And that is, you know, no matter which way you look at the wall, as a single line, as a series of joined-up dots, defensive, offensive, you know, whichever way you measure it, there's one fact you can't escape. And that is, throughout history, every era, every epoch, the wall always marked China's northern borders. Yeah, the true limit of Chinese territory in the north and the end of Chinese rule. Everything beyond it was considered by the Chinese themselves as outside of China, non-Chinese. You know, what's now Inner Mongolia was separate. The whole of what's now Western China, Xinjiang province, yeah. was foreign alien land. The land of the nomads, the Mongols, the Turks, what many people still call Turkestan today. Tibet, of course, was outside the wall, a sovereign country in its own right, independent. And as Matt pointed out in that ep, the very last imperial dynasty in China, the Qing, it itself was a foreign power invading through the Great Wall from Manchuria. As, you know, as I've said in a few episodes now, don't be surprised if things go back to looking that way, perhaps even within our lifetimes. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming. Lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler. 